Uh, let's stop and pray. Uh, and those words uh, in that chorus, that hymn, are, are worth stopping and praying and thanking Jesus about. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you uh, for saving us. Uh, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. You demonstrated your love for us in that. And uh, when we trusted you, you transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have forgiveness of sin. So thank you, Jesus, for being a savior. Jesus, we thank you for being a uh, helper, Lord, that you, you sit on a throne of grace and that we can confidently come anytime, day or night, um, to ask for help in our time of need. Jesus, we thank you that you're the high priest um, that gives us a right to approach that throne. Um, keeping, Jesus, we thank you for being our keeper, that you're gonna help us persevere to the end because you're not gonna leave us or forsake us. Thank you for that promise, that, that statement you made when you said that those the Father has given me, none will snatch them from my hand. Thank you, Jesus, that you are actively helping us persevere in faith, through, through difficult things like we sang about, uh, and loving, Jesus, we thank you for your love. You didn't just do this out of duty, but you love us. Uh, you made us in your image, and, and it's your joy to restore us back to that image. So we just thank you, Jesus, for being all these things and more for us. I, I pray that you'd help us to see your glory this morning, that we would be amazed uh, and astonished, just like these people in this scene were. Uh, but even more than that, it would, it would turn to repentance and, and faith and renewed hope and joy and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if, if you don't know me, my name's Kenny. Uh, my wife, Betsy, and I have two kids. Our daughter, Lily, Lily May, is eight. Our son, Levi, is almost seven. He will be seven next Sunday. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to say the least, uh, he has mixed feelings about authority. Parents, any parents in here, you got a kid like that? Maybe, maybe it's just my son, Levi. But, yeah, he's at a stage of life which we never really grow out of. He's got some mixed feelings about authority. Let me give you an example. Last week... We were at the picnic, the church picnic over at Clark Park, and we're having a great time. I mean, Betsy and I, these are all these people that we don't see every week, and so she's, I mean, she and I didn't sit together the whole time. She's talking, and I'm talking. We're like hummingbirds flitting around, talking to different people, and our kids are doing the same, and Levi at one point just got in, like sort of in the fray with all these junior high kids and high school kids who were running around in a water fight, filling up water bottles and soaking each other. And they didn't realize he was playing with them. He just was part of it. And so he's going over and filling his water bottle up and I'm trying to keep an eye on him. And I, keep, I look over at one point and he's like dousing some like adult that I don't even know who's having a conversation, totally not in the, the fight. And I had to go pull him aside. I'm like, buddy, buddy, you can't throw water on just anybody. And, and this is the response we get a lot these days. Ugh, fine. Man, that word fine these days does not go over well in our house. So fine, and he's looking past me. He just wants to get back. I'm like, buddy, buddy, you can't throw water on people who aren't playing. Do you understand? Fine. And he, so he runs off. And boundaries, too. We are saying, listen, this is a huge park. Not every a party here is our party, right? That group over there is not ours. That's not ours. Try to stay within these boundaries. And so Betsy and I are keeping our eyes out for the red shirt he's wearing running around. And we have to go, ch you know, grab him and bring him back and say, no, 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 that's outside boundaries. And we get the, uh, fine. But at some point he got himself lost. 
Near the end of the picnic, people were starting to leave, and Betsy and I are looking around, no red shirt, no red shirt. We start getting a little antsy, pulling other people in. We start, you know, scattering out. And I finally, all the way around on the other side of the lake, he's coming the other way with his scooter and one of the park rangers in their little golf cart. Um, And he'd found his way all the way to the very front of the park at the gate and realized, I don't know anybody, right? And he, his face was, you know, pale and his eyes were really big. And the lady brought him up and he ran over and, you know, just grabbed me crying. And he was, he was scared, right? He was saying, I didn't know where you were. I thought I'd lost you. And he was, I mean, just shaking like we wouldn't let go for a few minutes. He had to kind of calm down, right? He's got some mixed feelings about authority, Right? Doesn't like the authority when we're telling him what to do and trying to lead and guide and correct him. But man, when he's in trouble and he's lost and he needs a solution to his problems and, and, and he, he's loving that authority, right? The park ranger and me, right? We all have mixed feelings about authority, don't we? We don't grow out of this. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being led or instructed or corrected or guided often. Even stupid little trivial things like a no U-turn sign remind me how much I can just resist authority, right? I have to drive another mile down and turn around. I mean, there's no traffic right here. There's something in me that just wants to resist. Much less God's good commands, right? That draw a line where my heart wants to, to go. There's something in us that we don't like to be led. We don't like to be taught, told what to do. And we don't also like being held accountable to authority much either, do we? Not just the boundaries being drawn, but then when we step over them, we can resist being held accountable to the consequences of authority, right? I mean, maybe you can relate. I've gotten a speeding ticket before that I was totally speeding, knew I was speeding, they had me dead to rights, and I still resented the fact that I had to pay the ticket and go to traffic school, right? That I couldn't get out of it. I tried to get out of it, right? And I had to do it, and here I am, I'm resenting the authority that I know I broke, right? We don't like being held accountable to authority when authority actually says, no, um, you're going to have to pay the consequences here. But I think at the same time, for all of us, there's also something in us even as grown-ups, that we long for authority and we want there to be an authority, a real authority that is true and trustworthy, right? That's good, acting in our best interest, that's wise and strong to protect and provide. There's something in us that wants authority like that. We want someone who knows answers to our deepest questions, right? something else. We want someone who can solve our biggest problems that we face. We want someone who can cure our sickness. And we even want someone who has the authority and the power to protect us from our enemies, right? I might not be happy with the cop when I see him walking up in my rearview mirror when I was speeding, but if I'm in trouble and my life's threatened, I'm happy to see that man, aren't I? We want someone with more authority than our enemies on our side. And Mark doesn't waste any time in his gospel helping us see that Jesus has this kind of authority, the authority that we desire and we ought to want to submit to. That we ought to, I say. We still don't. We can resist it. But Jesus has the kind of authority that every one of us needs and ought to desire. 
He has authority to teach and lead us back into the truth. And he has the authority to save us from our most powerful enemies. And this scene here, Mark 1, 21 through 28, we're going to see both. Let me read it. Mark uh, 1, verse 21. And they, that's Jesus and these disciples that he's begun to call in in the previous verses, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Two things we see Jesus doing here um, that demonstrates that he has this authority. One is he speaks with divine authority. And number two, he acts with divine authority to overcome our most powerful enemy. So those are two main points. Jesus speaks with divine authority, God's authority, but he demonstrates it in what he does with this unclean spirit in this man by overcoming and delivering this man from its power. So he speaks with God's authority and he acts with God's authority. Let's look at the first. Jesus spoke with divine authority. He teaches And the people are blown away. Verse 21. They went into Capernaum. Look back in verse 14. Mark says, here's Jesus' mission. Here's what he's mainly about right now. And he's calling disciples to travel with him and do. Says, verse 14, he came into Galilee, this whole region, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So he is coming into Galilee with, a, with the purpose of teaching, proclaiming. And this is a, a mission of speaking, right? Telling people this good news that, that, that God's plan uh, is, is being fulfilled. It's at hand right now in him. And in verse 17, we see that his uh, speaking mission is also a fishing trip. He's pulling disciples in. He says, come with me. I'm going to make you become fishers of men. So proclaiming the gospel of God is fishing for men. Speaking and teaching in these synagogues like this, what Jesus is really doing is fishing. He's inviting people to receive him as God's chosen one. The very first verse, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to receive him. And so they, they enter into Capernaum, and it says on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. Now, we, synagogues weren't just little temples, right? Little, uh, you know, outlet, temple outlets, right? This was different. The temple was where they went in Jerusalem, and they offered sacrifices and observed these festivals uh, at times. But synagogues were in every town where there was at least 10 or more Jewish men, um, and they would um, establish a synagogue there. And the main purpose of the synagogue on, on every Sabbath was to read and teach the Scriptures so that the people would know and understand God's Word. 
the Old Testament scriptures. And these synagogues would have synagogue rulers like Jairus, right? We read through the first eight chapters uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or so. And there's Jairus, and he was one of these, but he wasn't the pastor. He wasn't the clergy. He was like an administrator. These rulers sort of called the gathering, you know, led the gathering, made sure the scripture was read. But the teaching happened from scribes and rabbis, traveling teachers, experts in the law who, who, would, who would travel and be invited to come up and speak and comment on and explain the scriptures that were read in the synagogue. And so it was common in a Sabbath gathering for the scripture to be read and then someone who was visiting to come, come up and, and give the message. We don't, we're not accustomed to that, right? If one of you said, uh, could I give the message this morning? We probably would say, no, uh, unless you're Billy Graham or something. Um, that's not the way we do it. But this is what they were accustomed to. Look at one example. Uh, put that up on the screen, Connor. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are traveling and they come to this town, Antioch, of Pisidia. And we get a little glimpse of Sabbath uh, synagogue uh, worship. On the Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Invited to speak. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he began to teach and explain the scriptures that had just been read. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. He and his disciples have come into the synagogue, and we're not sure if he was invited or in the service or ahead of time, but he was given uh, the platform to teach, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's explaining the scriptures. And Mark doesn't tell us what scripture. There's sometimes in the Gospels where um, he tells us, well, this is what was read, and then Jesus said this in response. But here, it just, he just wants us to know that Jesus was teaching. So I'm going to assume, going back to verse 15, that whatever Scripture was read and he was explaining or teaching on, here's Jesus' main point again. He went about proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the Gospel. In other words, the time that you've been waiting for God to fulfill is here. It's arrived, and I'm announcing it right here and inviting you into it. Jesus is teaching, and the people's response, verse 22, it says they were astonished. They were literally blown away. It, it, their, Jesus' words hit them with force. That's what this word is. They were just astonished at Jesus' teaching. And notice what it is about his teaching that Mark says astonished them. They were astonished for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That word as is significant, right? What he's not saying at least here is that what they were astonished by was his message. He was saying things that they, he doesn't say, well, he just taught, uh, he didn't teach them what the scribes taught so much as as the scribes taught, the way, the manner in which Jesus taught was different, radically different from the manner with which the scribes taught. So how did the scribes teach? The scribes were experts in the Old Testament scriptures. They were studied in the traditions and, and the, the, the generational traditions passed down of how to interpret these Old Testament scriptures. They were like the PhDs of theology, right? Um, but listen to this. This is a description of how they would commonly teach. This is a great book, by the way. Uh, Robert Bowman, you can write this down. It's called Putting Jesus in His Place. 
That sounds like a bad, like you're scolding Jesus, but it's a case for the deity of Christ. He published just the last couple of years. It's a great little book on uh, showing how in the Gospels Jesus was undeniably presenting himself as God. We didn't just make that up about him later. But anyway, in that book, he says this about how the scribes would teach. He says, rabbis, these teachers, would interpret the scriptures within the stream of oral tradition and rabbinical reflection that had been going on for centuries. And one of the principal functions of scribes was to write down and study and codify all these disparate opinions or contrasting opinions or interpretations that were passed down and supplemented by each new generation. Um, They based their teaching... Sorry, go back. I missed that, Connor. Um, They based their teaching on this oral tradition to such an extent that offering interpretations of Torah without citing past rabbis or scribes was something of an outrage. So in other words, what the people were used to in the scribes' manner is them pointing outside of themselves for authority, right? Their authority was derived. They're saying, no, no, listen, this isn't, you're not, this isn't just me here. Who I'm getting this from is this scribe and that interpretation and this rabbi, this tradition, right? I'm, I, I'm getting this from somewhere. And Jesus comes teaching as one who had authority. Jesus doesn't point outside himself for authority, but he teaches as though he himself just flat out has authority. It's like he's saying all this, this Old Testament scripture was actually about him. He's saying the one this was all pointing to, I've come. I'm standing right here directly in front of you. And he's teaching them as though he had authority. I want to show you a couple of examples of how Jesus taught with this unique sort of authority. Look at Matthew 5. Turn back one book in your Bible to Matthew 5. This pattern of of how he's teaching here in Matthew 5 He's setting his teaching apart from the Pharisees and scribes. Look at verse 20. He says to the crowds, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's, he's he's about to say, listen, the scribes and Pharisees have been teaching you about these commands about anger and lust and divorce and taking oaths and revenge and stuff. And what they have been saying is more narrow then, then what is the case? So look at the first example. Verse 21, he says, You've heard it said in, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults him will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he, he says, he says I, you've heard it said of those who said, of those who said, but I say to you, Right? And he does it again with lust in verse 27. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And in verse 31 with divorce, it was also said, but I say to you. In verse 33 and 38, he goes on. He keeps saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He puts himself in a whole other category. He says, I can just say to you. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 24... He says about all these words that he's just been teaching, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine 
and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. These words of mine, he says, are worthy of you laying the foundation of your life on. My word, he says. When you compare that to how the prophets spoke throughout the Old Testament, they always began what they were saying to the people, thus says the Lord. Or the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, right? Making it very clear, what I'm about to say, God told me to say this. I'm representing someone else. And Jesus just says over a hundred times, I say to you, I say to you, I say to you. In fact, he has this weird habit of amening his own I say to you before he says it. That's weird. Normally, when do you say amen? Where does amen go? At the end, usually with some, someone, someone else says, right? Someone says something that's true, that's, that is worthy of being agreed with, and someone says amen, so be it. That's true, right? Amen. Jesus here is, has this habit of amening what he's about to say before he even says it. Listen to Robert Bowman again. He says, Jesus' habit of beginning a sentence with the word amen has no precedent in the Old Testament like this, nor have scholars found any precedent in the rest of the ancient Jewish literature. There is something strange about Jesus saying, amen, amen, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's like he's saying, my word carries so much authority that I can amen it before I say it because I don't need to wait for you to amen it after I say it. He just says, it's true what I say to you, and then he goes. In Mark 13, 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Realize what he's saying. All of creation is not as enduring as words I say. My word is more enduring. It will last longer than all of creation. My words, Jesus says. What I promise will come to pass, what I command, what I warn, what I announce is more trustworthy and enduring than all of creation. So who talks like this? God talks like this. People don't talk like this. Mark wants us to see very clearly, this isn't another prophet, another scribe, another rabbi or teacher. This is God. This is the Christ, Son of God. He's come and he's bearing witness to his identity, even with the way he speaks and teaches. It's no wonder people were astonished by how he spoke. But that's not the only thing that astonished them. Go back to Mark 1. How he spoke, the manner with which he spoke, this divine authority that he spoke with astonished him. Uh, but also, he displayed his divine authority over a demon, over, over a satanic uh, spirit that had overcome this man. He demonstrates it by showing that he has divine authority to deliver us from powerful enemy. So here's the scene. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And it provokes a reaction in this one man, really this one spirit who has overtaken this man. Verse 23, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit 
And I don't think that Mark, well, he uses the word immediately a lot, and he doesn't usually mean immediately in sense of time. He, it's, it's, it's a manner of speaking where he's just moving the, the, the story on. I think that in this scene, this man is just sitting in the synagogue. He has an evil spirit. It doesn't sound like all of a sudden he burst through the doors and, and, and busted in because I think he's responding to what's already been happening. As Jesus is teaching with this authority and saying what he's saying, verse 23, there's a man with an unclean spirit uh, who cries out. Let's pause here for a second. Just make sure that we're all clear. The Bible is unapologetically supernatural. He doesn't, he's not just speaking metaphorically of a man with mental illness or who's delusional. He, wants us to, he intends us to understand this man was being controlled and influenced by an evil spirit, a spiritual being. The Bible teaches that, that there's a spiritual realm, that God is spirit, and that he's created more than just physical creation, but angels, spiritual beings that we know a little bit about, but not as much as we're probably curious about. And he doesn't give us details, but he says uh, that there is a, a spiritual enemy, Satan, that at some point angelic beings, some, rebelled against God, turned away, opposing God, and are currently actively in this world, still to this day, opposing God by attacking the people God made in his image. Opposing God by opposing his work um, through people that he made. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As it describes the state that we're all born into, what does it mean to be a, a human being who's fallen in sin? He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's saying, ever since Satan's initial victory in the garden, tempting and Adam and Eve turned from God's authority and tried to establish their own and acted on their own authority and transgressed God's boundary. From then on, Satan has actively been at work leading people in this world along a course. He says the course of this world is the same course that this prince of the power of the air is, is leading people down. And notice, he says, we're not innocent victims here. Uh, go back, actually, Connor, to that first slide out of the Ephesians, would you? Just two slides back. He says, we're following the prince of the power of the air, but we're not innocent victims. Go to the next slide. He says, because we're simply carrying out the passions of our own flesh, the desires of the body and mind, because by nature we're children of wrath. There's something about our sin nature that's bent away from God's authority so that... It's not very difficult for Satan to just lead us in this course, right? Because our, our, our hearts are already bent that way, and he's just leading us along. He's just keeping us in this course. Satan is actively doing that, and he's not omnipresent like God. You realize that, right? Even though sometimes we don't think, we, th we can think of Satan as greater than he really is. He's not everywhere like God is everywhere. The Bible says we have enemies. Look at Ephesians 6, 12. Put that up, Connor. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying there are very real spiritual beings who are actively opposing God by attacking people, us, fighting, scheming to keep us in this course, to keep us just following like lemmings, right, to our destruction, just to stay in the darkness, right? Paul says, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, I think, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just to keep us in this course, there's an enemy, there are enemies in this world. So let's go back to our scene now. I wanted us to remember that as a detour because this man in the synagogue who's under the direct control of a demon is not the only man in the room who's under Satan's influence and targeted by Satan's schemes, right? Everybody, all are following in this course. This man uniquely has been overpowered or is controlled in some way by this demon. And this demon, in verse 24, Jesus is saying what he's saying and the demon realizes who he is and the demon blows its cover. I think. This man is in the synagogue and this demon realizes, I know who you are. And he asks a question and he makes a statement. He he asks, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Bursts out with it. And why does he ask it? Because of his statement. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon recognizes who he's looking at, who's speaking right here, who has arrived. And he panics He panics. Have you come to destroy us? He knew. Genesis 3.15, put that up, Connor. Way back at the fall, when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, speaking to Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. This demon recognizes who's standing in front of him, and he's saying, is it time for the head bruising? Is this now? Have you come to to bring that about? And Jesus rebukes him, verse 25. He says, be silent, come out of him. Just a sentence, just shut up, leave. He sort of answers his questions a little both ways, right? Have you come to destroy us? Uh, Yes, but, but no, not yet, right? Yes, that is why I'm here. The Son of God did appear to destroy the work of the devil. That's what 1 John 3 says. And that's what Jesus has arrived to do. But, but right here, right now, he just casts this demon out. He just sends him out of this man. He delivers this man visibly from this demon so that everyone sees Jesus has this power and authority. But he doesn't destroy this this demon, at least here in the scene. And that's because our biggest problem is not that we have a tempter out there, but that we have sinful nature in here, right? We do have an enemy, Satan. He is powerful. He schemes. He steals and kills and destroys. But the biggest enemy Jesus came to kill is our sin, right? The reason the tempter is so successful is because we are dead in our sin, right? Listen to this. I love the way N.T. Wright puts it. He says, this won't happen until the demons have their final shriek at Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And they challenge and they mock the validity of his authority one last time. Our biggest enemy isn't going to be conquered yet. It's going to be conquered at the cross. And the... the, the, irony of the cross 
The mystery of the cross is that at this moment where Jesus looks the weakest and like he has the least authority, he's just hanging there helpless, struggling for breath. Paul says that's the power of God. That's the gospel right there. The world calls that foolish. That's the power of God. He's triumphing over his enemies at that moment at the cross. Wright says, the cross is where Jesus completes the work he begins that day in the synagogue. Have you come to destroy us? Yes, but not yet. He sends this demon packing. He's going to do the final destroying at the cross. Verse 26, look at the demon's response. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Immediate compliance. Just immediate. Here's this demon that was powerful enough to control this man and his speech, dominate his life, and with a sentence, Jesus just says, shut up, leave. And he's gone with a word. Well, I mean, he throws a little tantrum on the way out, but then he leaves, right? Look at the two results. Last two verses, 27 and 28. First result, the people, again, it says they were amazed. They were amazed at the way he taught, but then after this, it says again, The people were amazed and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. They're amazed at the teaching, this new teaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, but the authority with which he speaks and and the, the power he has to just command demons and they obey. They're amazed. Here's what I want us to hear this morning. And recognize their, their response is a great first step to be amazed and astonished at the authority of Jesus. But that doesn't equal repent and believe in the gospel and receive Jesus' authority as king and savior. The sad news at the end of Jesus' ministry as he go, has gone around and, and preached in all these synagogues and cast out demons in all these places throughout Galilee, near the end of his ministry, He says this in Matthew 11. He began, uh, there's a slide for that, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. And he even calls out Capernaum right here. He says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. He's saying all this amazement and astonishment for the vast majority of Jews in Capernaum didn't translate into submission to Jesus as king. They were amazed, but they didn't bow and repent and turn to him in faith. They didn't receive him as king. He even says Sodom, which was basically become shorthand for wicked city, right? The wickedest city. God destroyed the whole city because there was none righteous worth saving, right? Just destroys him. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If what you've seen and heard from me was done in Sodom, they would have lined up to repent. And you didn't. That ought to wake us up. Because we can be amazed at Jesus to a great extent and yet not take the step of actually submitting to him, repenting of our sin and our rejection of him, and turning back to him in faith and trust. We can do that. 
We can be enamored with Jesus. You can, be, you can be a PhD in theology and know scripture and be amazed at the doctrine of the incarnation, right? That Jesus is God. and man. You can be amazed in, at all this knowledge, but your heart could actually remain in a place where it's unrepentant and doesn't receive Jesus as that king. That's possible. Isn't that scary? We need to ask God to not let us stay just with unrepentant amazement. But amazement would move through all the way to its intended result of worship. God wants that to be our response. Mark wants that to be our response. He wants us to be so amazed that we receive Jesus. I couldn't help but think this last week, studying in this passage and thinking about this huge arrival of this long-awaited promised one and then how he was received, right, or how he ought to be received. I couldn't help but see some parallels here with uh, the iPhone 6. I mean, you know, now Apple has got this reputation for every year people are like, millions of people are waiting for the next big reveal at secret location and they're going to unveil the next mysterious thing that we all need, right? I'm mocking, but I I have an iPhone, okay? So there's, there's no problem with that. But I was thinking about this, you know, Millions of people have been waiting for months and blogging about when do they think it's going to get announced? What is it going to be? Smartphone, watch, what's that? How big is the iPhone 6, right? And all these people are just waiting. And then there's this announcement that's so big, you too has to be there, right? And he gives millions, 50 million people their album for free as part of this announcement that the iPhone 6 has arrived, right? Bono's like the John the Baptist of the iPhone 6. He's, he's or something like that. Anyway... Then there's this big announcement, and the first weekend that pre-ordering went up online, four million people pre-order this thing. They're just like, here's my money, here's my money, right? And then the first weekend that they start selling it in stores worldwide, over 10 million sales the first weekend. I'm sure there would have been more if they just had that much, right? They just were running out of stock. I grabbed a couple of pictures of just some of the craziness. I did not go and get in a line like this, but this was in London at one of the big Apple stores in London. And it just goes all the way back. Uh, the picture, I had to crop it, but you, it just goes all the way. It's like a mob going around, you know, the whole city block, Right? Here's this next scene at this, this London store. Here's the first few people who got a phone. They're being exited out through like a line of high fi- people, Apple employees, high-fiving them to the crowd, cheering that they have iPhones, you know. And then check out this guy. This was the first guy in this store to get to. He's leaping for joy. Okay, great. It's exciting. iPhone 6 is pretty cool, right? Mark wants us to see that the arrival of Jesus as conquering king and redeemer and savior who's come to save his people from their sins and to be their king and protect them so that even death doesn't have a sting. How much more should we receive him with joy and enthusiasm like that guy? I, just, I saw that picture and I thought of that guy in Acts that Peter and John healed and he had, couldn't walk all his life. And it says he's leaping and praising in the temple and praising God. And I saw that picture. I'm like, that needs to be us, right? Over this great news. Pray. If, if, if that amazement in your heart doesn't lead to that sort of joy and worship and repentance and trust in Jesus, ask the Lord. Lord, help me. Say, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Last result here, verse 28. 
It just says his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And I thought about that and the news of this Jesus who had unparalleled authority in his teaching and, and, and his power over unclean spirits, it just began to spread. They didn't even entirely know who this Jesus was yet, right? I mean, this isn't evangelism yet, but the news of him is just spreading throughout Galilee so that he keeps getting to, to synagogues, like verse 39, in, from town to town to town, and he preaches in every synagogue and casts out demons and just reenacts this scene we just read right here throughout all of Galilee who had already heard of him. And it just, it just made me think, we know what happened. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's done. We know the cross. We know the resurrection. We know he's coming again. We know the gospel offer that if we receive him, if we confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. And I just want to encourage us again to spread Jesus' fame, be people who are about spreading his fame because we know him. We know him. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy of your fame being spread like that. We, we, we worship you, we praise you, we submit to you, we rest in you as, as Jesus, our great high priest, the one who killed sin, took the, the consequences of our sin, rose from the grave, conquered for us. We thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for your uh, present reign right now, your spirit who is with us, that is more powerful than the enemy out there. Now you in us are more powerful, and we thank you for that. We thank you that one little word shall fell him. We thank you for the victory that we can know in Jesus, even if it means suffering for a time. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a kind of amazement that, that yields fruit of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.